As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Our relationships are a place where we struggle. There's a lot of dysfunctional patterns, concern, conflict. We are walking around in some state of dysregulation. Understanding not only the nervous system, but the different universal states as reflected in polyvagal theory or the polyvagal, the autonomic ladder, and mapping them on to actual relational behaviors can be absolutely game-changing for ourselves to relieve a lot of the shame that you know we carry when we do react from these dysregulated moments, and also a level of understanding for those around us that are maybe harming us in their reactive behaviors. Co-regulation is the process of the kind of entrainment or the impact of one state of nervous system. Regulation or dysregulation works in both directions and the impact that that then has on the other nervous systems around us. Welcome to the Inspired Evolution. I'm your humble host, Amrit Sandhu, and you're tuning in to a conscious conversation designed to help you grow. Our mission here is simple. It's for you to live your purpose, live your best life, live the life you love. This podcast is sponsored by Enthusiasm for Life, by great creation itself. To keep the good vibes flowing for myself and yourself, do us a solid, subscribe to the Inspired Evolution podcast on YouTube the home of the Inspired Evolution podcast. Now sit back, relax, open your mind, open your heart to this conversation and stay inspired. Keep evolving. Welcome back to the Inspired Evolution. And we have with us today, once again, Inspiring Our Evolution, Dr. Nicole LaPera. Hey there, Sister Bear. How are you? I'm so good. I'm honored to be back here. Thank you, Amri, and community for having me. Oh my God. It is such a pleasure for us to have you here. For those tuning in to Dr. Nicole for the first time, 
I'm a little bit surprised. We've done another episode with her. Feel free to go check that out. She's a holistic psychologist and the founder of the Virtual Healing Program, which is the Self Healers Circle. She's the author of the New York Times bestselling book, How to Do the Work, How to Meet Yourself. Dr. Nicola Perra also hosts the Self Healers Soundboard, which is a weekly ad-free podcast. You go into some really incredible topics on your podcast and it's really conversational which gives it the opportunity for us to really, I guess, just peek under the hood of really what's going on a lot in your own personal life. You have an open book, um, which I find is really amazing as well. And she's the creator of the popular movement, Self Healers. Today, she releases a whole bunch of free content on the daily just to help make trauma a thing of the past, I would say, like just the education around it accessible. And she's recently written a book, How to Be the Love you seek. Now, I have to admit, I love the title of this book. What prompted you to write a book on relationships? Was it always something you were going to do, Nicole? Or is it, yeah, tell me. I think like many of us um, on our healing journey or not, I think our relationships are a place where we struggle. There's a lot of dysfunctional patterns. I think no matter how far along or how quote unquote healed we feel um, on an individual level, I think again, our relationships have a lot of concern, conflict, drama, everything in between. So I think intuitively, um, like many of us, again, um, I continue to see myself, which is why I'm often sharing my own experiences, both in the book, on the podcast, and all of these different conversations, um, all of the continued ways that um, I struggle with older patterns based in my childhood in relationships. So having the opportunity, of course, to think about it on a deeper level, to, as I often do, tie some science around a lot of the concepts around why we struggle and, of course, creating or gifting the pathway out of that struggle intuitively. The next book then project for me was absolutely, I have to, I talked about ourselves and why we're stuck in so many ways. I put out a workbook to really give the practical um, kind of deep dive into exploring ourselves as an individual. So quite intuitively, the next point of conversation that I myself am continuing to have in my own relationships and that I think many of us are having is how do I create change in our relationships? Mm. I There is so much around childhood that we're going to go into in this podcast as well. And one of the things when I was starting out, especially in the book, is I'm hyper-conscious of the five love languages and me and my wife in particular have very different five love languages. Hers is quality time. Mine's is, um, and hers is quality time and acts of service, which I'm great at acts of service, which works kind of well. Um, but in like for me personally, it's, um, yeah, it's words of affirmation and gifts. And so we have like, literally there's very little overlap over our, over our um, five love languages and I just want to quote you from the book and get you to expand because when I read this, it spoke to something that we'd been carrying for a while unintentionally, which was recognizing the uniqueness in our experiences, preferences, and perspectives opens us up to infinite possibilities in self-expression and emotional connection. But there's a big difference between communicating our emotional preferences to others and expecting them to meet our needs in a very specific way. When we ask our loved ones to change their natural way of expressing themselves, we can then close ourselves off to other kinds of natural emotional expression and opportunities for deep connection. 
When we overlook what comes naturally to those we love, we inadvertently limit the space that we provide others to be themselves. Dude, when I read that, so I have to say this book, there was like multiple things going on. There was bits when I was reading it and I was like, yeah. <laughs> and there was bits where I was reading it and I was like, I just want to throw this thing. <laughs> I hate to say that to you, but I have to acknowledge it, right? Because when I read that, I was like, holy shit, like I've actually, I have been guilty of, I wouldn't say weaponizing the the five love languages, but at like using them to sort of say, hey, treat me like this, treat me like this, treat me like this. And then recognizing that like, actually that's not natural. And when I read it, I was like, oh yeah, I've just been setting more expectations, which is so fucking stifling. Can you unpack that for us? Yeah, I think when any of us um, meet and begin to utilize a concept like love languages, I think it can be groundbreaking and transformational to the extent that it really does introduce us to another person that is different in perspective and experience and preference for how support and love um, is displayed. And for a lot of us, I think, you know, as creatures, as, as human creatures, we live from our own experience and especially in childhood we project that experience onto others you know how our family is constructed in childhood we imagine all of the other families on the block look the same act the same until of course we go over and we meet differences and so i think love languages again when we come to be aware that we are interacting many of us trying to build a life and a future with someone who is different it kind of expands um, those blinders so i'm giggling when you say, and I appreciate your honesty and admitting you want to slam the book closed and throw it because oftentimes when we are met with that differing perspective, when relationships as they naturally do, I think a very saying that's commonly used is, right, relationships are our mirrors. And a lot of ways, what that means is we're hearing about how someone else, if we're willing and able, of course, to hear about how someone else experiences us. And I've been in that, those moments of hearing from even my closest, most supportive partnerships of a differing perspective about myself. And when those blinders come, come open, it can be really challenging. Um, I myself wanted to not only slap books closed, demand that these people are inaccurate um, in how they're experiencing me, though I think when we can let that in, um, we can give ourselves the gift of growing. But even going back to this idea of demanding and displays of relationship, very early on in my partnership with Lolly, I came upon that immediate conflict that would happen when I too was leading through. For me, it was acts of service, typically around exactly what I saw and experienced in my childhood. I had a very routine experience. My mom, who was the caretaker of the home, would we would have meals at a certain time every day. Our dinner would come at a time when my dad just arrived home from work. Um, in absence of her ability to be emotionally attuned and connected to all of us, that was one of the major ways she displayed her love, putting the dinner on the table, making our favorite food, making sure my clothes was washed and the house was clean. None of that was required of me. That was how she gifted me her love and connection. So now, flash forward decades of time, I meet Lolly. She could not be more different than me. She came from a household where there was no communal experience. Dinner was everyone fends for themselves. Um, and actually, she had lived the experience of being on the receiving end of a lot of emotional reactivity when she wasn't keeping her room the way that her mom had wanted her to or when there was dishes left out. So flash forward again in time, I would come home from work, um, working usually longer hours into the night, seeing clients than she was. She was always home prior to me. 
And when I would walk in the door and dinner wasn't made for me, or there were dishes in the sink and it wasn't, and my laundry, right, wasn't immediately done, I would initially react either explosively, right, telling myself through the mind's eye, that filter that we all have created in childhood that, oh, she doesn't care about me. She's not considering what I want and what I need in this moment, which is to have these things done for me. So I either explode outward, yelling and screaming that they weren't done, or I might just close myself off and I think do the very common experience of, is something wrong? No, I'm fine, right? Shutting down um, communication, conversation, and emotional connection, not knowing that again, those that they weren't intuitive, those displays, and actually for Lolly, they contained a lot of her own past traumatic experiences. And what I was missing out on, I think is that quote, speaks to were all of the other moments throughout the day, even throughout the evening that Lolly was showing up, excitedly wanting to share her day, wanting to hear about mine, wanting to share a new piece of information that she learned, connecting in the way that came most naturally to her. But when I was reacting to what wasn't, I was really shutting myself off from moments of connection that were equally as present. Thank you so much for sharing that because what I find is, and actually this is going to sound a bit rude, but when I tune into your work, I've obviously done a breadth of research and there are some critics of your work, which actually kind of go, oh, Dr. Nicole's like, you know, evangelizes hyper-independence <laughs> in some ways. And as I went through this book, I was like, actually what I got, and you know, this was just my awareness was the book is teaching us how to really like multi-dimensionally, and we're going to get into the dimensions in this podcast, um, self-care for ourselves to really be able to provide ourselves the care that we need so that ultimately we're so well-resourced that we're not actually looking for something from the external person, but it's not so much that we're not seeking, we still are available wholly and solely to the love that's available to us at all times. And it just seemed so intriguing just that our innate nature, we could actually settle into our being and just be present for ourselves and that love would actually, love is actually already present is kind of the implication. And for us to just allow ourselves to be, I'm going to use the word regulated and I guess we're going to start getting into things. Um, yeah, the things that stand in our way, I guess, is the segue to get into. Um, where do we begin with how do all these things drop in? Like I know childhood is an amazing, trend, like formative experience for us. And I almost look at it after reading your work that our adult life is somewhat just a compensatory effect of stuff that happened to us in childhood. Um, what stops us from being available to love? I think even just beginning with a definition, or at least my definition of, of, of what love is, um, I think we've learned a working definition, like I was describing a bit of Mayan in terms of what love is. I've come to realize, as you're beautifully sharing, love is an, an embodiment, a state of presence, a state of compassion and acceptance, that safety and the security that very few of us have had in our earliest environments and relationships where not only can we be ourselves honoring our wants and needs and in an active negotiation, right? Receiving and giving support. That is how we are wired. Um, we as a species have not only learned to survive, but to thrive and joining together beyond just 
acts of labor and, you know, division of labor and all of that comes and protection against, right, the physical enemies, actually emotionally to be able to co-regulate with those safe, grounded others. And so I believe that that's what love is, is being in that grounded state of presence where we can actually be interdependent with a different other person who has, again, their own perspectives, their own wants and their needs. But even going back to what most of us have learned, and I think why I often do myself read a commentary that I speak from a hyper-independent, a Western kind of view of relationships is I think a lot of us have learned a more codependent. We've, um, we've confused love with this idea of being selfless, totally in service to, often at the expense of our own wants and needs. And as I dove into not only understanding the nervous system conceptually, but seeing in my own life, it is those moments where I'm under-resourced or where any of us are under-resourced or where we're dysregulated and we're reacting from that threat-based state, even if it on the surface looks like we're serving another, right? We're just saying yes, or we're showing up even though my limits are being crossed. In reality, we're not in that state of grounded presence. We're in a version of survival mode. And again, for me, it took a lot of unlearning, a lot of unpacking, a lot of really exploring and seeing in myself how foundational those earliest relationships are. To put it simply, we learn how to relate to ourselves, and we're always in a relationship with ourselves, and how we're relating to those around us by what we had to do to survive or to ensure those connections in childhood. And more often than not, because of lack of information, because of lack of resources, we were not raised in that calm, grounded, safe, and secure environment where we could just be ourselves and we had a caregiver who was present emotionally to help us co-regulate and was, who was curious about who we are and how we are. So more often than not, the reason these patterns of selflessness, of service to others or whatever it is, they at one time were adaptive. They were the only thing that we could do to ensure the connections continue to be available to us. Because again, in childhood, we are in that state of not only physical dependency, but an emotional dependency, which is why I think flash forward in time, we engage in all of these more transactional ways, um, thinking that it's love and connection, but in reality, it's just our safety and those habitual patterns. Because that implies that we have a fundamental need for love as well, right? And it seems like you you pulled together the word safety there, and I, you know, we we look at the in your book, you look at the the physical, the emotional, and the spiritual. But when we start getting into starting off with the physical, like, you know, the book is written really well. There's like worksheets, there's sections where we can actually go through and checklist, and you can actually rank yourself. And it's not like a rank yourself, but it's like actually just a quick little scorecard to sort of see, hey, is this an area where I need some work? Um, and I guess the there is an opportunity for us to sort of ask the question, which is what are some of the signs and symptoms that we're not, like completely safe within ourselves, but I also just want to. That will be the question. But one of the points I just want to harken back to is I wanted to interrupt, but I'm learning not to do this as much. Which was just the profound fact that love is not something that we basically show up in a particular way, right? It's like oh yeah, show up in a loving way, but actually just feeling the feeling itself and just being in that space. And I don't want to use the word emanating, but like just being and offering that space within yourself to others. And so 
the question still stands. <laughs> How do we know that we're not potentially safe in our system? Yeah. I think the first you know, foundational step, which I remain committed to to this day, is being aware um, that we are in a physical body um, that, again, has a nervous system that is outside of our awareness, always assessing our own safety based on what's happening contextually in the environment around us, relationally in the environment around us. And I think a lot of us, even very well-intentioned of us that think right our way through life or analyze our way through life are missing that fact that we're in a body that's driven by our nervous system and that even our nervous system, as I go into into the book, our mind and body, of course, are interconnected, um, as is a lot of these states of being and states of dysregulation. I talk about neurobiological habits um, that are quite literally wired into our way of being so much so that we can only feel safe in the context of it's familiar. It's how I know myself. It's how I know myself in relation to you. I know what to expect that comes next, that they are actually wired into our way of being. So becoming aware that, again, we're in a body, that our body is giving different sensations, messages that are being sent to our mind in any given moment um, that are then going to impact what we're thinking, how we're feeling, how we're navigating or coping with what we're feeling, and then ultimately what we're doing and how we're showing up in our relationship. Because again, few of us spend as much time connected to those sensations, more so even fewer of us are able to deal with all of the discomfort of navigating an emotional experience as being a human. We don't yet have the tools. So how do we know when we're unsafe? We first attune to how we feel um, in our bodies on a regular basis and more so how we feel in our bodies when interacting um, with different relationships. Again, I think a lot of us lead our relational life from our mind, um, from all of these shoulds, right? I should show up in service of you. I should do this. I shouldn't do that. Again, all grounded probably in what we had to do at one time to maintain those connections as opposed to shifting our focus and exploring how do I feel? And the more we do that, the more we can attune. And I give lots of different uh, markers within the book in terms of what to pay attention to in ourself to determine whether we're safe or unsafe and what to pay attention to in other people to determine if they're feeling unsafe in a given moment. And the more we pay attention to our body, our breath in particular, the tension in our muscles, our heart rate, those are all markers of how stressed our body is. And those are simply then markers of how safe or unsafe we feel. So again, are we feeling calm and grounded? Are our muscles at ease as opposed to tense? A lot of us carry tension all of the time. Is our heart rate you know, beating more or less normally or is it elevated? Can we not feel our heart at all because we're a million miles away from our body? Same thing with our breath. Is it calm and deep? Is it coming from the belly or is it shallow and quick? Are we holding our breath? the more we're indicating those markers. I have tense muscles. My heart rate is elevated. Um, my breath is really quick or I'm holding it. Those are markers that my body is not feeling safe based on whatever is happening or how I'm relating to another person. Yeah, the the holding of the breath one is, <laughs> I have to say, one again, one of those throw the book, love the yield the book moments because this was from like a couple of a couple of from the last podcast we did, and uh, yeah, it just that's my pattern. 
I hold and I didn't recognize I held until I started, like I really started diving into your work and I was like, I'm a holder. <laughs> it's, it's like, I carry my breath like luggage, bro. <laughs> and, like, and there's a moment to be like, and I'll just I'll find it even in, in my everyday activities. Like, oh, I haven't breathed for like a good 30, 40 seconds it feels. And maybe it hasn't, but it feels like, and it's like, whoa, okay, well, 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 just, you know, come out of it. And it's been really profound just to like have that as an, as an, um, as a tool to access. This kind of blew me away because you're talking about emotions and you're talking about the body. I just always imagined that our emotions were something that sort of, yes, stemmed from maybe it's a bit quantum within our field, but I, it, I always associated it with the mind. Yeah. And like in the book, you go into highlighting the fact that emotions aren't actually a product of the present moment. You refer Dr. Lisa Feldman Barrett, I think, and her theory of like the constructed emotion. Can you explain that to us and its relation and what that implies about the body and emotions? Cause that was, I had to read that a couple of times. That for me um, was a life-changing piece of information. Um, the reality, first and foremost, that re- emotions in and of themselves are not only not a byproduct of our mind, they're not a byproduct of necessarily anyone else saying or doing or not saying or not doing. Because You make me us, angry. <laughs> a lot of us go right into, right, this yeah, idea. You piss me off. Sorry. Because, because no, but in, in, all, in all seriousness, because it's so under our consciousness that things are already sensationally happening in our body that's then contributing to the narrative. So even just using my example of coming home for work, from work, right? Coming home from work in a ball of tension, um, so much so that even going back to this idea, I'm a breath holder myself. Um, I was not able to access a deep, calm belly breath because over the years of holding my breath of muscle constriction from my mid to upper back and in my jaw and in my shoulders, I actually started to kind of hunch over in posture, making it really hard to breathe deeply. So now flash forward, I'm coming home from work. Hi, honey, I'm home. And my whole body from the day of work, from a lifetime of stress and tension is sending messages outside of my awareness that something unsafe is happening from the tension, from my lack of breathing, from whatever it is that was happening, right? So what then occurs or follows is my mind goes back to all of the times in the past that I felt that similar way in my body. And because our minds are meaning-making machines, even from birth, we're always trying to make sense of the environment, right? So one of the repetitive ways I've made sense of when stressed out in that emotional absence from my mom in particular, my narrative would be, oh, you're not caring about me. You don't consider my emotional needs in this moment because that's exactly what happened. All of this is happening beneath the surface. So I'm walking through the door, the body sending all of these messages of tension, of stress. The mind is applying that same narrative because it likes to be right. Oh, this is happening again because there was a time in the past where your emotional needs were not being considered. And then I react from that statement. So emotions in general are physiological experiences. In in my workbook, How to Meet Yourself, um, I talk about what what core emotions are and the evolutionary markers um, that they offer us from fear to anger to sadness to surprise to disgust to joy. These are things that naturally will occur, shift and changes in our physiological state that all have different information in them. 
though, again, what is different for all of us is then the feelings, right? All of these other complex things that are very much like you're beautifully describing a part of our mind, all of the different nuances of all of those different emotional messengers that then get filtered through our mind, more so filtered through our past experience. And then more often than not, we not only feel the same way in our body, we send the same filtered message to our mind, and then we become locked and loaded in the same habitual way that we've learned to deal with that particular feeling. So again, to simplify it, our emotions aren't necessarily often even an accurate representation of what is happening in the current moment. More often than not, they're a remnant of what has once happened, driving us again into those same habitual patterns of how we made sense of it and then what we've learned to do next based on what was available or not available to us. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Okay, so where the body... And I'm just conscious also I've been <laughs> holding my horses and I think I've done a pretty good job to wait 20 minutes into <laughs> this episode to have this conversation because um, I'm almost running the risk these days of it becoming the inspired nervous system podcast, <laughs> to be honest. Inspired nervous system evolution is pretty much <laughs> where it's getting to. And I, I have to admit, like, reading a book was kind of like a um, – it was beyond serendipitous. I've been playing this game for the last few months, Nicole, where, and this is such a trippy dippy thing, but you know, the audience is used to me now. I'll be walking around like my shopping center and I'll just, um, I'll just visualize everybody instead of the people that they are, just these red hearts. Yeah. And these upside down Christmas trees hanging from just behind their heart, which is their nervous system. And I'll just like attempt to view the world this way. And I'm just like, oh yeah, that person's really like, you can tell that the Christmas tree has this kind of hunchy sort of posture and you can, I don't want to say you can like Neo see through the matrix, but it's just a cool sort of like thought experiment to go into. And I've been playing with that for a little bit. And then for me, I guess the realization has just been coming more and more to just how deeply wired our nervous system really is for our physiology and just how much of a profound role it's playing helping us modulate our experience of life and we will get into the heart later but let's start with the the nervous system because even in all of my research I'd come across three different like I'd come across the connector the eruptor and the detacher but I did not come across the ladder. Maybe you can run us through a little bit about polyvagal theory and the auto autonomic ladder because the pleaser, again, when I got to the pleaser, I wanted to throw the book. <laughs> this is, I promise it's a really good book. It's just, it really struck a nerve more than once or literally, yeah, the vagus nerve. Um, yeah. Can you explain that a little bit about how the body is, yeah, keeping these scores? 
our, our nervous system, I think an important place to start in terms of understanding is that it's still developing. Um, it's still, our brain is actually still developing. We now know scientifically in, into our, until our twenties, um, which is quite surprising. So we're, we're born developmentally immature, um, so that we could be birthed, um, and ultimately, so we are in this active state of development. So in terms of, you know, how foundational it is and how much of an impact or an imprint our environment and our relationships in particular have, I mean, it is at the core of our being because we're in that state of development, because all of our neurons are firing and wiring again, because our own nervous system's ability to regulate is dependent upon the availability and the nervous system state's of those around us. And again, this is true for several years um, once we're born and walking around. So when we talk about, and for me, I, I had none of this information. I did not learn this in my schooling. I had no idea. Again, I oh, was none of us do. from yeah. my own body that I wouldn't have had any of this awareness that the reason why, and I love your visual of walking around and viewing everyone as, as in terms of a nervous system state because that is the reality. It's governing our entire way of being. And again, the large majority of us, because we didn't have that safety and that security in someone else's nervous system to connect to, to learn how to even regulate ourselves, we are walking around in some state of dysregulation. And then we're trying to relate to other people. And before we even get to the heart, we're not relating to other people at all. We are literally combating the threats around us, which oftentimes are those that we love the dearest. And we're, we're seeing that in the way that we're treating them. So understanding not only the nervous system, but the different universal states as reflected in polyvagal theory or the polyvagal, the autonomic ladder that you're describing and mapping them on to actual relational behaviors can be absolutely game changing for ourselves to relieve a lot of the shame that you know we carry when we do react from these dysregulated moments and also a level of understanding for those around us that are maybe harming us in their reactive behaviors because our nervous systems again are wired quite universally we all go through the same protocol if you will outside of our awareness we're sensing the environment around us and and any moment where we perceive a threat real or based on the similarity to a past experience where it was similarly threatening, right? We're brought right back in time. The first line of defense, must, much like we see, I think reptiles are always the example given, our reptilian brain. The first thing that we will do um, is we'll engage, our muscles will begin to engage, blood will begin to flow, our heart will begin to beat faster, um, our breath will begin to quicken because much like the animal, animal on the savanna, our first attempt is to fight whatever we're perceiving to be our threat at hand. What that looks like then in relationships, I give it a name called eruptor mode. It looks like erupting, literally screaming, yelling, saying, doing things, some of us throwing, hitting things, right? When we don't necessarily mean to, but that becomes our first line of defense. If it's not possible or if we perceive the threat is too big for us to overcome it by fighting it, our next line of action, using all of that mobilized energy, the tension in our muscles, the quickened heart rate, um, the quickened breath, we're going to flee, um, where we're going to distract ourselves. We're going to leave the conversation. Some of us avoid discomfort entirely. We pick up our phone. We start to scroll. We put the television on, right? That's like our running away. Of course, we're not maybe physically. Some of us might leave the room entirely, but we might emotionally distance ourselves from this overwhelming threat at hand. If and when um, we cannot leave, we can't run, we can't overcome it, or the threat becomes too consistent, 
then we begin to enter into those shutdown states, the dorsal vagal. So now we're dropping down the ladder. Um, again, we're not calm and grounded and connected and responsive at the top of the ladder. We're not in that fighter and that flight. We might, ent- we might enter freeze mode where we're almost bracing ourselves. right? We're there, and I spent a lot of time in this mode myself. We might have a lot of tension, holding our breath, waiting for the next shoe to drop. Um, or if and when, again, the energy is too much, the threat is too much, we shut down completely. We mimic playing dead. We lose all energy in our muscles. They become weak. They become flaccid. We barely are breathing. We're all, we might be couch locked. We can't leave. Socially, anim- or, or us as animals, humans as species, we've evolved a different um, response, what I'm calling pleaser mode. It might also be known as fawning. Um, one of the ways, again, in childhood that we've learned, and I'm a big pleaser myself, some of us have gained benefit from being hyper attuned or hyper vigilant to the environment. If you had an inconsistent parent, right, where you had to learn what their cues were before they erupted or before they detached or how and when they were able to, in my case, show up in connection and celebration, because we are very attuned creatures, we'll learn to scan our environment in that way. And in a sense, we'll begin to act to remove the threat or to mitigate or lessen the threat before it becomes present. And much like the pleaser name that I give it, it it often does look like people-pleasing, right? Saying and doing whatever, caretaking for someone else at the expense of ourself. Because again, that became a survival strategy so much that if I remove the threat before it becomes a threat, I've learned to keep myself safe in that way. And again, we continue. Um, We've laid down these neural pathways, almost like these ruts, these habitual ways that we've dealt with it. And then we likely see those same patterns showing up in our current relationships. Again, when we're stressed because something really stressful is happening or because of the similarity that it mimics that past experience. Thank you so much for explaining that. And again, thank you. No, I don't want to say thank you. No, thank you for the for the pleasing bit. But like you, and I think I totally relate to, um, yeah, just how you carry stress and trauma in your system. I think for me, it's just really great reading your books because I have a similar, um, my compensatory patterns is what I'm just going to call them for now, are very much one for one. And so it's really helpful for me specifically when I read your books, but they are, they cover everyone's spectrums one of the key things in there is how many people do you like how many people are in like connector and celebration like do you find like because you the way we think tune into it's like okay so that's our like regular state when that's when we're regulated surely like the majority of us are in there and this is just for like a handful of us that are just walking around a little bit compromised and just to sort of go back to the the visualization which i know people are probably just like stop with the trippy visualization amrit we get it you're a tripper um the the christmas tree i see like little blobs like you know just these little blobs just hanging around just like oh yeah like and like you said i'm not relating to people like directly i'm relating through the blob you know it's like if i was in a boxing ring and like i didn't have my left hand all of a sudden it was tied behind my back and i'm trying to have a really good fight but it's like i can't because i've got this restriction because i've got this blob in the upside down christmas tree how many of us are actually well regulated from your well of experience um and how many how many of us do you think could use the work and possibly check in around what's going on in our nervous system I think, again, it's important to understand that the goal nor the possibility even is to be always 
in that regulated state. Um, we're always going to experience stress. We're always going to experience negative, upsetting emotions. We're always going to be dysregulated. What is important, however, is to be able to come back to that peaceful, calm, grounded state where we actually do feel peaceful, calm, our muscles at ease, feeling connected to the world around us, right? Breathing calmly and deeply, being open and curious and imaginative and creative and all of those things that might as well just be beautiful concepts written in a book, but nothing that I have ever experience yeah, because there, for decades right <laughs> and, and for decades of time despite my universal you know kind of professing that all i want i, I make a joke and i probably said this maybe before even to you that i'm a hippie at heart all i want is freedom peace connection love man throw in my peace signs however the reality of my experience was so i'm saying what i want though in moments of stillness i did not feel at ease i did not feel safe in my body all that tension that i was describing earlier was actually sending messages to my mind that it, it stillness isn't safe. There's a threat at hand. Nicole, my mind would race, scanning my day for the possible upset, right? Oh, it's that argument in the morning or the dishes that aren't done right now. And then I would agitate the situation. I'd feel agitated. And before long, right, all I wanted this peaceful Sunday afternoon isn't peaceful at all. So to speak to the point, nor is it possible to be in that calm, grounded state always, though what is possible is to move from feeling stressed to feeling not stressed. So saying all that to say, I still have met very few of us that have the resources, the capability in our nervous system to actually in maybe not even in any moments at all. Like I might be speaking to a, a version of you right now. I was speaking to a past version of me where peace, calm, that, that's, that's a great idea. It's nothing that I've actually experienced or embodied. Or again, maybe I just have moments of that. That is the goal, though, is to be able to become stressed and then to be able to downregulate or go up the ladder, if you will, calming our breath, calming our heart rate, um, and becoming more grounded and more present. So again, I've, I've met few of us that have that ability to be stress resilient or emotional resilience because that's a, that's a feature of our body and our nervous system to be able to actually physiologically go up and down that ladder so that we can then feel clear-minded. We can be grounded and present and curious about a different person and their perspectives. We can be creative and imaginative. So all of those things are possible, again, when our nervous system is in that state of that connector mode or that ventral vagal state is a scientific name for it. Yeah, there's so much that I learned from my I've got a little white fluffy dog. Judge me all you want. <laughs> and and uh, she, um, I learned so much from her. It's like when, you know, little things like sort of trigger her, she'll have the moment and then she'll do like, she'll do the, the stereotypical, like, like she'll just shake it off. And I'm again, trippy dippy hippie. So like, if, you know, when, when someone cuts me off in traffic and it's like, it's shocked me. I like, I can feel the freeze and I'm like, whoa. And then I can feel like everything autonomic nervous system is just like jacked and you're just like, well, and then it's like, oh yeah, do the guy. And her name's Guy. And I'm like, okay, just shake some of that off. Like, let's just, whew. like, and it's just amazing how much nature has a natural recourse towards us, like coming back through to connection, celebration and being in that state. And I love what you're describing in that actually it's not about staying in one sort of holy zen space and idealizing that it's being able to like hey i'm actually really healthy i've got the dynamic range and ability to be yeah just able to access the different levels and layers as i need to because there's moments where we need to be able to fight there's moments where we need to be able to fight and in some instances yeah like you know 
the bus is about to like literally walk past, like fly past you, freeze, motherfucker. Like just, you know, just don't step out in front of it. Like it's probably useful to have that. I want to bring it back to relationships and I'm going to throw in the name uh, Thomas Hubel because we both recently had him on our podcast and first of all, wow, I love the guy and I'm just wow um, and I'd love to tune into your, maybe some of your thoughts on, on Thomas as well when we bring it back to now co-regulation um, because obviously this is us and then the way Thomas looks at it is well, before we even, in the beginning of my podcast, we had to really understand what the field was before our field started dancing and interacting with the field of the other. Um, yeah, that to sort of open the conversation, bringing back to relationships and co-regulation and your awareness around that. And how do we, yeah, co-regulate? I'll just leave it there. Again, I, his work, my work, when you understand the nervous system, I think you you do begin to understand that we are never alone, right? We are never hyper-independent. We're never on our solo island. We are always in interaction with the environment around us through unseen signals that our nervous system sends out, even more so through unseen signals that our heart um, is sending out to that does impact and communicate with the nervous systems around us. So to simplify that, my de- definition of the field would be the universal experience of always being in relation and in communication to someone else. And of course, if you blow that up to society and the groups and the you know communities that we're a part of, we are pinging all of these signals back and forth. And so simply co-regulation is the process of the kind of entrainment or the impact of one state of nervous system, regulation or dysregulation works in both directions and the impact that then, then has on the other nervous systems around us. So when I become stressed, I can become home tense as I was, right? I'm pinging all of those signals that there's something threatening in the environment. And then whether or not I say anything, just to use Lolly again as that continued example, her nervous system, right, before I erupt or disconnect, will pick up on my threat signals, the stress in my body. And that will then activate her nervous system. If she remains calm and grounded on the other end of that spectrum, then my stress level might actually, if she doesn't react to my eruption or my disconnection, and she's able to be calm, be grounded in herself and her presence, it didn't activate her nervous system. Then on the other side of that coin, I could then feel the calm in her body and actually can downregulate and become calmer myself. And that's happening outside of our awareness. And again, blowing the conversation up that is, I think, what is causing in our societies, right, a lot of these reactive moments of interpersonal conflict, of conflict among groups, of just in, in general, um, the, you know, conflictual nature. I think that we are interacting with a lot of people because we have a lot of individual nervous systems that aren't able to be in that calm, grounded state of presence that are pinging all of those around us and are equally causing a continued collective, just to use um, Thomas Hubel's language, a collective nervous system response. And I'm very hopeful because in communities like his, like yours, like mine, I mean, we are beginning to become aware of this nature of us as interpersonal, interdependent creatures. And many of us as individuals are beginning to show up to do the work, to regulate ourselves, to gain the support, finding safe others to co-regulate with. 
Um, and of course I can go down the rabbit hole of the science of the heart and how impactful that can be when two people join together in that calm state of coherence or heart-brain coherence. There's actually, it's been studied, um, a concept called social coherence and the incredible impact that to simplify it in the nature of this, the more calm and grounded, more groups of us become, the more then this universal nervous system is beginning to shift the signals, calming the conflict, um, the crime. There's been studies where individuals in these states of coherence, of calm, grounded, heart-based presence are actually impacting directly um, crime and conflict in neighborhoods around them. Yes. And some of the research comes from one of my accreditations is heart mass facilitator. And yeah, it's incredible when you start tuning into the electromagnetic field that the heart is, because we think we give so much importance to the mind and rightfully or wrongfully. So like it helps us achieve so much, this supercomputer, like it's pretty ridiculous. Like AI is coming along somewhere now, but we've been, we've had this technology for God knows how long, right? And um, yeah, but the actual heart as an energetic center and pulse, and you spent like, we start with the body, we work through the emotions in the mind, and there's parts of the mind that, you know, probably we still um, ought to unpack a little bit further, but let's, let's, we're at the heart. So your awareness of just, I guess, how profound and energetic center the heart really is for navigating things. Um, and maybe I'll just ask it now and you can, you know, expand out the response because you also, one of the things you said was like intuition comes from the heart. And I was just like, oh, and then like actually realizing how important regulation is and co-regulation is so that you can actually be in a peaceful, calm state because you went along the lines of basically articulating that only from that calm place can we really dial into our authentic self, our intuition, and then have the conversation really about what is your purpose, you know, which is like my deepest fascination on the podcast is purpose, right? But yeah, that was such a tender point to go, oh, like all of this work to really be able to access my heart and allow it to do its thing in a really good way. Yeah. I've myself um, as an individual have been always been so fascinated by the power of the mind. Um, typically I've been fascinated by other people and their powers of the mind to create change. I was very much limited in my own belief in my own power of the mind. But then of course I entered the field of psychology, which very much emphasizes like you're sharing on the power of the mind. Um, and ultimately it leaves out my training left out the body in particular. So when I stumbled upon the science of the heart and the gift that HeartMath Institute has given the collective in terms of actually putting out scientific research, studying those electromagnetic fields so that we could come to know that, yeah, the mind is powerful. It's like we've been discussing, sending out all of these unseen signals to the world around us, though so is our heart and even at a greater distance. And as I became aware of this information, it just so happened to be at a time where I was still not yet ground it in that safe state of presence to being able to, even like I was describing earlier, stillness, right, to attune inward was an overwhelming experience until I taught myself how and my body more specifically how to be, be safe 
in that stillness, how to begin to drop in and be able to attune to what my body and my heart in particular was was saying, was wanting not to just overemphasize as many of us do and try to logic our way through problems or weigh all of our different options and then vet maybe everyone around us to determine what it is that we need to do next to actually begin to drop into myself and to begin to listen to what it is that my heart is telling me. I do believe that is the sight of our intuition, right? This guidance. We all want to know kind of what to do next, how to navigate the next moment, what relationship is aligned for us. And I think very few of us, like I was saying a bit earlier, are connected enough to our bodies, are in that calm, grounded state of presence to even attune to what our heart is saying, or we might have those moments of intuitive awareness, those pings, as I call it, right? The instinct to, you know, kind of grab the umbrella and it just so happens to be raining later that day or that marker of, right, the ping of this is maybe a red flag in this person that I'm meeting and my intuition is telling me that, you know, maybe this isn't the relationship to continue to pursue. A lot of us might hear those, you know, proverbially, like we kind of register those pings, but then we override it with our beliefs, with our mind, with our conditioning, with our focus on being accepted and liked by this person and overriding that ping that's telling me that they might not be aligned for us. So for me, I met that concept. The heart is powerful. That is the heart can not only send messages to those around us, it actually can impact the way our brain is functioning, the way all of the systems of our body are functioning. If we're able to attune to our heart, to be connected to our heart, um, to activate our heart through those heart-centered emotions of care, of compassion, um, of love, of gratitude. I read it as a as a concept and I came to realize, again, I, I was not connected. I had to continue to build that foundational safety so that I could hear my heart and then I could begin um, to act from my heart. Because not only do I believe that's our intuitive space, I believe, again, that allows us to then begin to express our true authentic self. It's not from what we think we should or what we were taught to do in any given moment. It's again, coming from that deeper place of awareness. And again, when as I began to build that safety into my physical system, then similar concepts like purpose, like passion, like imagination, like creativity, all of these things I didn't imagine myself to be because I, I left creation when I left art class in high school. Purpose, passion, I'd read books about these purposeful people, right? Like I was sharing all of these people creating these things with their mind. That's just not me. I must have missed that genetic component only to realize that the reality of it was we were all that in our inherent nature. When we're those stuck in survival mode, we can't think about imagination, about creativity, about purposeful and passionate things. We're just trying to survive that given moment. So again, all of those um, natural characteristics lives in the heart of each of us. And we gain access to that as we include our body on this journey, as we become more calm and grounded in our own presence, as we begin to hear what our heart is saying, and more so we begin to make choices in alignment with those messages. Thank you so much for sharing that. <laughs> there's, um, there's, from this point, Coming into the heart feels, and I've I experienced this even having facilitated this work for others, regularly just feels, I don't want to say, there's, there's, there is a discomfort actually, I will say it is uncomfortable. Um, and it's 
for me, and I'm not sure if this is everybody, um, but having worked with a few people, other people feel numbness. I feel like this slippery dip, this really daunting, like roller coaster slippery dip feeling when I'm coming into regulation. But I'm aware that that's also because I've built a relationship through um, through entrainment. So the the thing in there is, yeah, just why is it so difficult in your humble perspective, or not difficult? Why is it so uncomfortable? Stop saying it's uncomfortable to say the word uncomfortable. <laughs> Go there, Amrit. Why is it so uncomfortable um, to drop into our hearts? Yeah. It's uncomfortable because for many of us, it, it isn't familiar. Um, many of us have lived the experience of even a calm moment being immediately followed by a moment of explosion, the other shoe dropping, a moment of reactivity. So not only is it not that habitual state of being that our nervous system has come to learn, Many of us have associations in our mind of past experiences where that only indicates, right, the calm before the storm. So we then become primed, right, when there is a moment of, oh, okay, you know, I'm, I'm here, I'm in my heart, I'm, I'm calm, I'm grounded. That only has come to mean for me, based on what I've lived in the past, that there's something stressful around the corner. It almost can't be trusted. So yeah. absolutely. And I appreciate you sharing your experience because, again, I have all of this awareness Right. And yet I have all of those patterns in my childhood where not only is it unfamiliar for me to connect with my body where my heart lives, though actually receiving love and support from those around me, assuming that I've even made myself vulnerable to acknowledge and admit directly to those around me that I need love and support is so unfamiliar, even if I have someone actively showing up in service of loving and supporting me in any given moment. So it is kind of like a version of the other shoe to drop. It doesn't feel to be trusted. Um, the giving, and again, this ties, I think, all of our concepts together really beautifully. Love, this state of pure beingness and the give and take of support and all of that comes with it in presence for a lot of us isn't our familiar state. We're not used to being connected to our heart. It feels like it can't, it's not to be trusted for a lot of us and or it feels vulnerable even admitting that we have those needs, that we do need someone else in given moments, which again is the universal state of being human. So again, I'll be the first to admit there's many moments to this day, to this moment where even someone showing up, even me having to admit because people aren't mind readers that, hey, I need some support right now. I could use some love. I could use some you know, kind of physical touch or whatever it is or some co-regulation feel so exposing, let alone then allowing myself to relax into that moment of connection, of support, of co-regulation. Again, we are all wired to prefer the familiar, which is why then oftentimes we avoid it. As you shared what you shared, I was conscious that us asking for support can come from two very different places. Um, and inviting in the conversation around the empowerment consciousness that you bring into the book, which I think is really one of the massive take-homes for really being able to navigate this work in a really even supportive way. Um, because oftentimes asking for support, it's like, I ask for support all the time. I never get what I want, you know, and that victim sort of asking for support is very different to like 
you know, it's almost like I can see it from above the line and below the line, right? And so from below the line, asking for support is something that, you know, I've done in the past, but I've come from a place of wounding and going, hey, like, can you just, why can't you just treat me like that? Or, you know, and just asking for things to be a certain way to continue for the other person to navigate around my wounds, right? But then from above the line, asking for support is a very different conversation once again, because it's like, okay, this will, this is coming from a place of wholeness and I can sort of see where I'm concave and I just need a little bit of convex right now and it's okay that I need that. And being able to discern between the two at surface level without the context of the conversation we've gone through can be rather difficult, but I'm recognizing that potentially even now it may not be crystal clear. Can you help us delineate between the two and maybe a good place to sort of explain what empowerment consciousness looks like. I think from the beginning, it's important to understand that people aren't, aren't mind readers. Um, to receive support, you know, oftentimes that means we have to indicate directly by communicating that we are in, in that state of need. I mean, I know I've, I've lived many relationships in my past where I just had the assumption, right, if you just were the right person for me, you would be able to anticipate how couldn't you know that I need support right now when in reality, if I were to hover above me, right, I was being hyper-independent. I was keeping you at a distance. I wasn't allowing you to support me. So how could you, right, know that I was actually in need of support my entire way of being was indicating and was not allowing myself to be on the receiving end of support. Another little sneaky thing, and I'll just speak from my own experience, that I saw about myself is even in the moment where I've asked for support, I need you to relieve me of this thing or be there for me emotionally, I have a very specific, this even goes back to the love languages conversation we had a bit ago, I have a very controlling specific way that I expect you to do the thing that I'm asking you to do. I want you to do it my way. Or to show up, right, in this, emo- I, I need you to do it my way, right? So again, a lot of us, when we are being direct about a need for support, we're being really limited or narrowed, again, based in the way that it registered in the past. And we can be really controlling and then miss the opportunity for a different version of support. Or even if it's in the action of, oh, I need you to relieve me of doing this thing, caring for the household in this way, to receive support sometimes means to allow the dishes to be done the way our partner is going to do them. Maybe not stocking the dishwasher the way we would want, right? But if we're asking for someone to even do something like that, because this is a lot of time and a lot of the conversation I do think comes around division of labor, receiving support in these very physical gestured ways. And, you know, we might have a partner that does load the dishwasher, but it doesn't, it's not loaded the way we would load it. So now we're upset right? That we didn't get supported when in reality we did. It's just not the way we would have wanted it done. So if we are going to, and when we are going to ask for support, I think it is really important to, of course, we could express our preference, but also like we were sharing earlier to make room and space for the way someone else is able, able or capable in any given moment to show up in support of us. We also have to understand as we've been talking about more recently, that we have to be able to receive support. And for a lot of us, that's not comfortable. And more so, we have to be aware that we might be asking, and we're asking first and foremost, another human individual who in any given moment might not be able to show up in support of us, not because they don't want to, 
but because they don't have, again, like we were talking about earlier, the resources available to give support in any given moment. They might have something going on in their emotional lives, with their family, with their work. They might be beyond their resource limit. So even if they very intentionally want to show up in support of us, I think something we have to understand is the energetic exchange of a relationship and not everyone, and this is why I think it's so important, and I've been doing a lot of content recently on social media, really emphasizing the importance of other supportive relationships, of friendships. It's why I now have self-healer circle, a community. It's important to find other places to go to get the support, you know, when our primary person, because we put so much expectation on one individual. And if they're not able, and some aren't capable of being present to us in that way, of being supportive, they have nothing left to give themselves. And then, then our again, expectations get, are just burying them down further as well. It's right. Fun. And then we think that they're not a support. Again, this isn't to say that there doesn't have to be a mutual exchange. It doesn't have to level out somewhere over time. But in every given moment, as some of us are in a state of need, the reality of it is we might be disappointed and a lot of us struggle. I know I struggle with disappointment. We might be disappointed when someone isn't able to meet our need in that moment or to show up and support whatever it might look like for us in that moment. And or when we're on the receiving end of the ask for support, we might need to get comfortable with disappointing someone else, even those closest to us when we are beyond our limits and it isn't available to us to show up in service of someone else. And ask now for the audience. I've had the blessing of going through the book, having recognised the importance of co-regulation, our loving relationships, the spaces our partners potentially could be in, the spaces we are, and the filters that are consistently dropped in all around us all the time that are potentially inhibiting us from experiencing reality in its truest, most beautiful form, and in and around each other. How we mentioned the breath. Um, as a really amazing practice to learn to self-regulate. What are some of your just top takeaways and yeah, that can inspire us to sort of learn how to self-regulate. Obviously I encourage everybody to pick up the book and maybe a great sort of segue to say, where can people find the book as well? Um, but then also, yeah, let us know what some of your top sort of key access points to learn to really self-regulate because these aren't actually that complicated. Yeah. I think it's often the uncomplicated and the simple that, you know, become the most difficult to believe that it'll work because ultimately, again, I'm going to be Have honest, you done the it, it doesn't work immediately, right? Five deep belly breaths. You could hear me talk about deep belly breathing. I'll talk about in a second and go try it like for one moment, you know, five, it's not going to shift and change us so drastically as we want. However, it is the daily commitment to, again, being in our own physical presence, discovering what our body feels like. And for me, breathing, like I was sharing earlier, my musculature, my posture, my tension made it very difficult for me to access a deep belly breath. So hand in hand with breathing and a daily commitment to checking how I'm breathing, to noticing all the moments where I'm holding my breath or I'm breathing really shallow and quick, went hand in hand with a movement practice, for me specifically, a stretching practice, trying to actually release the tension and to teach my body and open up the space to be able to even access that deep belly breath. So it's a daily commitment to this moment in time that I keep for myself. 
in the mornings for me is my best time before I engage with the world and all of the obligations and even those that I am so excited and interested to engage with, creating time and space for me to release that tension. My belly breathing practice, um, you heard us share earlier, right? That calm, grounded breath from deep in my belly is an indicator that you're in that state of connector or that ventral vagal state of open presence, of calm safety. However, I couldn't do it except for laying down. As my body was so tense, I actually began that practice by committing to in the mornings after I would stretch, I would lay down on a yoga mat, I would put my hand on my belly, and I would just practice. Because this idea, this tool, oh, I'm going to deep belly breathe in, in real time when I'm becoming upset was not accessible. It right? I couldn't remember it. My body couldn't actually do it when I was standing up straight, at least in the beginning. So again, it took time and commitment to releasing the tension, to teaching my body a new way of breathing so that over time then in those moments of acute stress, as my heart began to race, as my muscles began to tense, as I'm getting ready to say or do something that I don't mean, then these intentional moments of, okay, I'm going to slow my breathing down. I'm going to redirect it or I'm going to stop holding my breath and redirect it down to my belly. Maybe like an animal, I'm going to shake out some of the energy, some of the tension. Now I have those tools, those intentional choices at the ready so that they could actually impact my abilities to stay responsive in those moments. And of course, I think always have to end with, and then there are moments where we're beyond our point of reactivity. We actually have to remove ourselves from the stressful situation, the conflict that's happening and take ourselves away, like we were kind of talking about earlier and go take some time to reground, to regroup, and then to re-engage um, the conversation or the conflict or to repair whatever it is that has happened. Because we all have that point of no return where we lock back into that reptilian brain, where we lose access to all of these beautiful moments of choice and control. But again, all of this comes with when we learn ourselves when we develop the tools outside of these acute moments, when we start to learn our body's different markers of getting close to that point of no return, when we don't shame ourselves when we've crossed it, there's still moments where I'm saying something I don't mean. And then a moment later, I'm like, why did you say that? It's because I couldn't stop myself physiologically. I was too gone. I wasn't caring for my body. I wasn't replenishing my resources so that I could actually stay in that responsive state in those moments. Yeah. Cause that, dojo of doing the physiological like this whole conversation recognizing how important the physiology is like the body the actual embodiment of it and yeah like you said just even i'm aware that taking the time to learn what it feels like to belly breathe outside of the intense situation so that i've actually got some symptomatic markers that i can go oh yeah i'm not doing that i am doing that rather than just being in an intense situation going, figure out how to do this. And like, even without figuring out how to do this, even it's just like the first part is having the awareness that I'm not breathing, you know? And it's like, but you don't have a physiological awareness of what it feels like to be regulated and building that awareness in your physiology. So important, so profound. Nicole, where do people find the book, please? Thank you. Um, absolutely. So the book can be found, um, hopefully stocked wherever you buy your books, all major book retailers. I do have a new website up, howtobethelovyouseek.com, that has some retailers listed for here in the States at least. 
Um, also come find me. I'm a big proponent of these free, accessible conversations, community information. I'm talking about all of this stuff daily on social media at this point across all the different social media platforms. So however it is that you like to consume content, whether it's videos on YouTube or TikTok or more written word on Twitter or Instagram where it all began, come type in the holistic psychologist. You'll see some version of that handle. Um, and join these conversations again, get access to these resources free of charge um, outside of purchasing the book. And of course, get access to this amazing community. Thank you so much. And again, I could totally thank you for our conversation today. And I will thank you for today's conversation. But also, you mentioned this before we went live on air today, just how much of yourself and your past relationships and you can tell when you read the book the examples that you share you've really vulnerably opened yourself up so much and almost gone through significant number of relationships in there to sort of unpack hey this is what happened in this relationship this is what happened in this relationship and not from a place of hey check out my relationships definitely not I can imagine it would have been quite uncomfortable to unpack all the different processes and going hey this is where I was I was compensating for this and I was disco-regulated uncorrect like unregulated here and this is how this person had picked this up in childhood and all of that to say just how abundantly you shared yourself in the book to make it, and like I said, maybe I'm just kind of cuckoo, but I know I'm not because so many people love your work. Yeah, you going there for yourself and being able to share it and give your practical examples makes it deeply, deeply accessible and relatable. I know it makes it relatable, but then when I stopped to reflect on how relatable it was, it was like actually it makes it deeply accessible, the work and the way you do that. So I want to thank you, obviously, for your time here today, but also just it's a lifetime's worth of work that you've poured into the book and the conversation that we're having here stands on the shoulders of all of that. So just really acknowledging you and just loving you. And thank you so much for, for everything, Nicole. Mm. I mean, thank you, Amrit, for those kind words. Um, for me, again, it is such a practice of being vulnerable in these really authentic ways, which does mean not only exploring for myself, my past relationship experiences from my family to my partners to my current struggles. Um, my hope is always that it, it be of service. If you don't resonate exactly, maybe you see parts of yourself in my story. Of course, I have many other examples I give throughout the book, though I do think it is as each of us, much like you do on your podcast within your community, as each of us share more aspects of our own struggles, our own journey. I think this is how we begin to feel a little less alone um, in the universal you know, suffering that so many of us are still experiencing in our relationship. So I hope it is of service to everyone who does choose to pick up the book. I'm so grateful for your continued support and really honored to have had this opportunity to connect with your incredible community again. So thank you. Oh man, it's pure fire. Even last time I had you and I was like, oh my God, this was so much fun. And this book about relationships, and I, I, I should you not, the podcast literally is becoming inspired nervous system evolution. <laughs> like it literally. It's hard to moment, avoid the topic when it really is at the center of so much of our struggles and our healing. <laughs> it's It's been really interesting because I've been doing this for like six and a half years and it just feels like now this is like really where everything is just kind of landing. It's like, and we had this lady, I don't know if you've come across her work, Suki Baxter. She does whole body revolution. Um, if not, I might 
link you two up, but she was the first person I came across explaining polyvagal theory quite some time ago. And I found her work because she was like, if you come back to stretching and every single time you do a stretch, it feels like it's the first time you're doing that stretch nervous system. And I was like, what the fuck? That's me. (laughs) And it was incredible. And then I started going along on her journey and we had her on the podcast recently and you'll love this. And I was hoping to capture this somewhere in the podcast, but it's perfect how it is, is she said, nervous system regulation is the purest form of activism. Uh, Beautiful. Could not agree more. I was just like, fuck, like that is just so profound. Like, Ella started to tune in. She's like, yeah, because you look at all the wars, you look at all these people that are fighting all these things and just, yeah, like if they were able to regulate and we were able to regulate and the more we regulate, the more we encourage others through co-regulation to regulate, wow, like, you know, anything's possible. And that was just, yeah, and then we had Thomas Hoople on, now we've got yourself on and just the, the conversation just seems to be really present around the nervous system and, Hopefully I didn't lose too many people with the heart and the upside down trippy dippy Christmas tree. <laughs> I love it. I mean, I often too. I mean, I, I think about um, my visual is always kind of the childlike version um, of all of us walking around. And especially when we're in these moments of tantrum or of disconnection, really staying connected and grounded too. right? This is a coping mechanism in this moment. This isn't the person at their pure essence. And this came from a hurt experience from an overwhelming experience. And, as difficult as I think as it is to navigate some of those moments, I think that opens up a bit of, of compassion. And I found it really interesting what you're sharing, especially because I um I had a direct experience of this recently where I did, I don't know if you've heard of this, but it's like NAD plus IV therapy where, mm-hmm. oh, you have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I, I tried did it myself. Like, oh, yeah. So I did a whole healing. Oh, you've done it. Okay, cool. So I've done a whole healing protocol of like five and 10 days and like went and like my body actually feels very different. And previously in our relationship between me and my wife, I was the one that was the sort of reactive one. Well, not sort of, I was the reactive one. And then after the treatment, she's pregnant right now as well, which is, you know, definitely going to not cut us some slack, but hold space for that conversation. Um, And I've been watching, like, as soon as I came back from treatment, she was like, how are you feeling? I was like way more emotionally regulated to the point where I was in the seat where I could watch her fly off the handles. And I was like, this is amazing. I'm not the, you know, and it was really profound to sort of see this is physiological healing and I can actually witness, and again, fly off the handles. Her flying off the handles is not even remotely close to my flying off the handles, but but just to sort of prove the point. But it was amazing to sort of witness how deeply the the physiology plays a part in all of our emotional, intellectual regulation. And that's what I just, kept loving about the book as well was just this this arc back to your body your body your body I couldn't agree more foundationally me getting you know clear on what my nutritional needs were getting clear on what my sleep needs were my rest my need for movement um, stretching while I profess it as a part of my day I mean I had to really work through the tendency to move away from discomfort when I to speak to that beautiful point right when you get to a stretch it's like you're doing it for the first time I wanted to get the hell out of that stretch in that moment, because I was so used to avoiding physical discomfort, emotional discomfort, and I really had to learn to lean into it. And as I have um, learned to take care of my body and learn how to tolerate different levels of stress in my body, particularly around, um, speak to the NAD piece, but nutrition in general, 
limiting the inflammatory foods and really increasing the amount of nutrient density that I was eating has been a profound shift in my own ability to remain calm as opposed to, because I do think more often than not, especially with the food system here and a lot of the foods that we're eating that have no nutritional value or are really highly inflammatory, the amount of processed foods, some of us only having access to that type of food. Yeah. I really do think what it's the fuck? physiologically it's set up a cycle where it is hard to remain responsive. Um, many of us are battling, you know, many just aspects of our food system and all of, again, the implications that come along with that. Have you experimented with the carnival diet? Because I'm on the carnival diet right now and it is fucking insane, Nicole. Like, Yes, physiologically stuff's changing and I'm like, well, this is kind of dope, but <laughs> that's my own vanity, right? But the 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 key thing, like the lack of negative self-talk, like I was just like, what the, I just wake up and I'm not hard on myself? Like what the fuck is going on? And I just, I, I still can't believe it. Yeah, and I I'm sticking to years. it just for that. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. I came from years of um, experimenting with vegetarianism, vegan, veganism, reading and learning about, you know, Me factory too. farming and all that came along with it. Cowspiracy. Um, yeah. And this is right, right in the kind of mix of me not only hitting my emotional crisis, but physically starting. I was fainting. I was having an intense brain fog. I could barely stay awake if I didn't have coffee. You know, I was barely making it through the day. So shifting, adding meat back in in general, experimenting with periods of time. I do eat beyond meat now outside of carnivore, but I have experimented with that. Like I said, has literally been a, a life changer. Um, my body wasn't getting the nutrients it needs for very understandable moral-based reasons, though in my opinion, and I'm watching more and more people. It's funny, a lot of people assume that I am vegetarian or vegan for some reason. They associate holistic the work that with, we do, yeah. with that and with that being the healthy lifestyle. And they'll be like, oh, I, I cut out meat. And I want to be like, uh, uh, like not what I would suggest. Um, I, of course, try to withhold my, I mean, I share my experience and I allow everyone to make their decision. Um, but again, I think I'm I'm troubled to some extent continuing to see how Many people are removing meat in favor of more processed foods. I'm even watching the movement of lab meat becoming such a big point of yeah. conversation again because it's priced more, you know, availably or accessibly. And it just worries me because we are already struggling to deal with our emotions. And now we're coupling it with an incredibly inflamed body. Um, and again, it's concerning to, to see the byproducts of that. It's such an interesting journey that we're all on, right? Because I remember even clearly like when I was in this moment where I was in my vegan journey, I remember seeing a vegan hot dog and I was like, vegan hot dog with all the vegan sauces and everything. And I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. How healthy. And <laughs> my God, they made it vegan. And I was like, yum. And I look back now and I was like, bro, I reckon you're just eating straight cardboard, man. <laughs> and then you read the ingredients and you're like, what's that? What's this? Why does it have numbers after it? You know, I started, I'm like, oh my God, there's nothing whole food in this at all. And I was the same. I was thrilled when they came out with Beyond, Beyond Burger, Beyond uh, Hot Dog, Beyond Chicken. I'm like, oh, great. Look at it. I can just mimic. And I looked at it. I, then I really looked at what I was eating and I'm like, there's nothing real in here at all. Yeah. Yeah. One of the last things I just I wanted to share was the the part of the book which again I wanted to throw was the nothing bothers me Nicole and I was almost going to introduce you today as that as like hey guys nothing bothers me Nicole Rivera because fuck me I my statement was I'm I'm always all good 
so asynchronous. <laughs> it was just so synchronous. And I was like, oh my God, like I totally relate. And just what that pleaser does in their shutdown. Like, and I, I said this before, but man, seriously, like your work, the way you write it, like you hold space for everybody's different systems. But I think, yeah, for me, it's exceptionally profound because I have the same patterns um, of doing the same shit. <laughs> oh, I'm so glad you you're picking the threads. And like, oh, that's oh, how course. we pick the th- Dope. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I really okay. appreciate it, man. I really appreciate well, it. Thank you for sharing um, your resonance on such a personal level. It, again, continues to help me feel a little less alone um, in the continued struggles of peeling back all that comes with that that kind of conditioning and how difficult it continues to be for me to actually allow myself to be bothered, to be in need of, and to receive, um, again, that which is now available not only with one partner, but with two partners on the daily. And yet I still have moments where I'm locked in the room complaining about how no one cares about me. And I'm like, Nicole, what, what are you doing? Like, how many more people do you need around you to care at <laughs> any given moment? You know what I mean? Like, it's so illogical. Like, yeah. oh gosh. Hey, I wanted to ask before I let you go today, a couple of things. Can I, I know you're busy on the book launch and that should be your sole focus for now but um again can i reach out to you like six eight months maybe 12 months from now for a podcast on boundaries i'd really love to do a conversation on boundaries because i think it's a for me personally it's just a massive edge and i know for so many of us it is um if you'd be open to it i'd love to i'd love yeah to. i think Thank again you. such an important conversation still a very active one in my own life so 100 yeah. awesome cool <laughs> Thank you so much for tuning in to this amazing episode of the Inspired Evolution. Without you, the Inspired Evolution tribe, this podcast would not be what it is today. Thank you so much for your love and your support. Thank you so much for being so inspired to evolve. It's truly inspiring. If you haven't already done so, please subscribe to the Inspired Evolution on YouTube, the home of the Inspired Evolution's video podcast. We release inspiring conversations such as this every week, along with guided meditations and empowering insights all designed to help you grow and evolve. Honestly, your subscription on YouTube to the channel helps us out a great deal. And one of the other benefits, if you're having any insights or shifts from these episodes that you want to chat about, or if you'd like to leave myself or the guest a message, please do so in the comments on YouTube. I truly look forward to hearing from you. And as always, Tribe, remember to stay inspired and keep evolving.